I'd like to propose a toast. Hello and welcome to Before Brunch. I'm Megan Cassidy. And I'm Cassie Delaney. And we are your weekly celebrity pop culture, arts and social issues podcast. And we go live every Saturday morning at around 7 a.m. You said that so confidently for a podcast that goes out sporadically. <laughs> yeah, we need to change that, but that's just in my muscle memory. Yeah. We are sporadic. We are a podcast. Culture. We are a podcast. And that's the nature of podcasting. Is that it? It's sporadic and it's we react to things. Yeah. And we talk about the things that you're going to be talking to your friends about at brunch, which you can do again now. Mm. Um, so we like to talk about things that have happened in the news, in pop culture, in the zeitgeist sometimes personal things and wonder what they mean for us and then by proxy what they mean for you. There was a huge reaction to our last episode yeah. two weeks ago about friendship and loneliness. Yeah, I think it was something we got so many messages in from people saying they were experiencing the same kind of anxiety about the world opening up again, mm. that their fears were coming from sort of this like preemptive FOMO that they didn't have big groups to be booking things for. And that listening to the episode and hearing us talk about how we don't have those groups either really made them feel better. And it's totally fine. That's the bit that really resonated with people was the idea of not having a group. Mm -hmm. I think people, you know, because we were saying we have lots of pockets of friendships um, whereas, as you were saying, there's people booking huge tables for 20 and um, everyone getting together again. And those are the people that are posting most prolifically on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I think that really struck people. It's like there are so many ways to have friendship in your life. It's not the friendship group is not the be all and end all. I feel like you've got a real giddy expression today or something. You're about to do something bold or there's something else going on no, on your laptop. There's nothing. I just have my I have some notes here open about Britney Spears. We're going to have a chat. I'm just happy to be behind the microphone again. I've got a coffee. OK, it's great. I will admit I I have had really bad nights sleep this week. So last night I took a Valium. So I'm kind of in a weird. That's mood. what it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. It's a high. Yeah, you just look like ready for mischief. Like there's gonna, something bold's going to happen over okay, there. I'm trying. I'm gonna. I'm gonna contain myself. Yeah, we felt like we had to talk about Brittany and obviously her testimony to do with her conservatorship this week. Yeah. You've have you listened to the entire thing in full? I've read the entire thing in full on Variety. We came back because of yeah. the re, or of the framing Britney Spears documentary. Mm -hmm. That's the reason that we um, came back and sat down and said, right, we need to do an episode because that's exactly the type of thing that we would have talked about. And it's been the biggest pop culture story of the year, and I think. It's a historic pop culture moment. It is. And actually, we can we can talk a little bit briefly about the piece you wrote for Rogue a couple of weeks ago as well, which I think really nailed all of this. And that is those kind of 90s female stars. So Britney, Paris, um, those people coming back, Megan Fox, Jessica Simpson, reclaiming their power mm. and being able to exist now in this more progressive world and talk about the treatment that they endured in the 90s and how unacceptable it was. Mm. And I suppose Britney is testimony of that. So we have often looked at Britney Spears and her treatment and particularly the, the paparazzi coverage of her breakdown in 2007 and now in hindsight talked about how unacceptable that that behavior was, how we consumed her like it, like 
in, in a cannibalistic sense that yeah. we wanted to know everything about her. We wanted the paparazzi shots. We bought the magazine covers with her on it. We've all seen the photos of her shaving her head. We've all seen the photos of her at the paparazzi car with the um with the umbrella and we follow that in, in intricately and even though so many years have passed you know 14 years have passed since that time we can still remember the details and probably the sequence of events and who was involved and then being hospitalized and even the the photos of her being removed from her home in an ambulance mm. all of these really really deeply traumatic intimate intimate moments we have had oversight on and realizing a lot of people realizing then but realizing now that this is not how we do celebrity this is not yeah. how people should be treated so taking all of that learning and then bringing it into modern day we have I suppose dealt more compassionately with certain female artists and that's something she kind of touched upon briefly in her transcript in 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 her um conservatorship hearing this week mm. was that we were much more lenient when it came to the likes of Miley Cyrus smoking marijuana on stage at the VMAs and the kind of iterations of Miley Cyrus throughout her career and just understood that to be a process of growing and we're more open to it and accepting of it and not making excuses for it but just treating her with a bit more compassion whereas mm. you know 20 years ago when Britney kissed Madonna on stage it was outrageous mm. it was absolutely you know it was overly sexualized it was completely inappropriate and we we berated her for that and not so much Madonna because she's untouchable but like Britney and Christina certainly felt the brunt of that and when you compared that to something like 20 years later or however many years later being able to have like little Nas X perform an SNL in the sexiest gayest dance routine of all time so he's obviously like an lgbti icon he uh, performed with loads of male dancers it was shiny nude so sexy mm. and we celebrate that now whereas before we berated britney for it so even though we've learned a lot we've kind of gotten to the stage now where for britney the treatment hasn't ended. Yeah. She is still in a conservatorship that is punishing her for her actions of the past and also still holding her in a completely oppressive state, mm. which now hopefully we all have the um the the sort of the cognizant the the ability and the the knowledge to question that and advocate for her freedom. Yeah, I think it's really sad that she was effectively a trailblazer in so many ways, even though you have to look at that through the filter of her management team. And from a cynical point of view, they knew that sex sold. They were still controlling her interview message. And you could see that she was very much a stage school kid in those interviews. All of her responses were controlled and she wasn't ever allowed to own her sexuality, even though her performances were so sexual. Yeah, There was always that cognitive dissonance within her that she didn't know am I sexy or am I not what do they want from me yeah so she did she was one of the first to to really um you know engage in really sexual performances that was what her thing was now we see it all the time and it's not a big deal but I still don't know if that was her or how much control of that message she actually had because the narrative was always that she was always in control but now we've seen and what I was most disappointed in myself for having listened to her entire transcript from court yesterday is that I allowed the media machine to still 
influence my thoughts around well if she's saying she's happy on Instagram and if she's doing all these dances on Instagram maybe she is okay with this conservatorship Mm. maybe because the free Britney movement was 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 kind of pitched very much as a grassroots like peripheral movement of weirdos theory it started it really began at the kind of conception point where a lot of conspiracy theories do. Yeah. It picked up steam on Reddit and yeah. um, in online forums and chat groups and fandom that are so easily disregarded as just mania or people yeah. who are like, who have confirmation bias. So people are coming from a point of view of being supreme Britney fans, mm. reading into it. And then there was a lot of sort of arguments in the Free Britney movement originally that that kind of undermined the whole movement the kind of you can see 991 in her eyelashes you All can of that, see yeah. yeah you know if we, they were leaving secret messages basically saying Britney if you're not okay wear yellow in your next video mm. and then she would wear yellow and it's that kind of thing where like you ask the universe for a sign and then confirmation bias you see the sign yeah but I don't think that those I don't think that she was participating at that stage no. I don't think that she was involved so because a lot of it hinged on those kind of like the minutia of those details it was very easy to undermine it because it became yeah. ridiculous yeah it felt very fringe mm. and what when I heard her speaking yesterday and her saying you know I've lied I'm not happy this is what's happened this is what happened it's like why do we have to be told again like we've seen all of this but it, it very often is when you look at media and you look at these stories and what's reported and what's not reported the simplest solution is usually right yeah and very simply this woman was put in a conservatorship yet still worked seven hours a day was doing Vegas residencies was making a world tour incredible money for these conservators mm-hmm. of course it wasn't right it's just not right it's so simple yeah and the fact that she's had to say it so many times that's what's so painful I remember and so she had her first breakdown in 2007 or her first public breakdown anyway in 2007 and made a comeback in 2008 with Blackout. Yeah. And in 2008, a documentary was released where she kind of did express some discontent with her relationship with her father. And she said, you know, she cried to the interviewer and he said, do you feel like your life has gone out of control? And she said, no, I feel like it's too in control. She was already yeah. a part of the conservatorship at that time. So she was saying this since 2008. I can't do quick maths. How many years is that? That's 12 years, 13, 13 years. 13 years. Yeah. Um, she's been saying this all along. To hear her real voice yesterday, and I it was a real authentic, like visceral anger. Yeah. It was, that's, I've never seen that side of Britney before because she's always been stage school kid who is prepped to within an inch of her life. And it was very clear with this piece and this statement that she had prepared it alone. And it was so sad to realize how alone she is because you always imagine it's Britney Spears. She said this herself. You imagine it's Britney Spears. She has a team. There has to be someone on her side there with her, helping her, prepping her, speaking on her behalf. Wanting the best for her. Yeah, but there is not, it seems like there is not one person no. there on because her team. she hasn't had, she hasn't had the, the opportunity to select those people on her team. So she mentioned yeah. in her testimony that even though she got on really well with her attorney, she didn't select her attorney. Mm. She was being made to go. She didn't select. So uh, two years ago when the court ruled that the conservatorship would go ahead, but her, Jamie was being removed as her conservator and a temporary conservator, Jody was put in place. She didn't have selection over that person. She has been made to go to therapy. And one of the saddest things was that 
She's been made to go to therapy for twice a week. She says she doesn't connect with her therapist and she doesn't want to go out to meet the therapist. She wants the therapist to come to her house because she feels she's being set up. And every time she goes to therapy, the paparazzi are outside photographing her when she comes out. Mm. Now, going to therapy is the most intimate thing that you can do and should be the most private because you're going to it just should be on your terms you're going yeah. to deal with some personal trauma and that's one-sided you're going to speak to a professional to deal with your inner trauma coming out of a therapy session and having an audience is traumatic it's mm. and it's re-traumatizing and it's going to remind it, it's kind of putting her in a position where she knows that every time she goes and she be she's getting to be vulnerable mm. she comes out and she's exposed to the world so one of her small requests was that if the conservatorship can't be lifted at the very least can the therapists come to her so she has the privacy to do that and heal yeah on her own terms in her own house in her own private yeah. situation so it's really incredibly sad but when you think about it, it's hard to really quantify, you know, 13 years, the blink of an eye. But like in that time, so she has, like you said, she's had blackout and then she had the blackout tour. Circus came after that and the Circus World Tour came after that. Her, I was ringside, 350 euro. I was too. I was like touching no the stage. I was the sitting beside circle. her sons. Oh, no way. Oh yeah. my God. We were probably in the same Mine was the night there was that horrific accident outside on a on that um, carousel thing in oh, the three arena. Remember. Someone died. Oh, Jesus. I don't they remember fell that. out of the swing. Um, yeah, I don't remember that. But I was I was at that tour as well. And so many people were. She did two yeah. or three nights in Dublin, I think. I think she did three nights for circus. Yeah. Um, so there was and, and that's the thing you talk to everybody now about Britney. We were even mentioning yesterday, even down the coffee shop after talking about um, the testimony coming out and both Amelia and uh, Shane, who works in the coffee shop, were like, oh, yeah, I saw her in Brighton four years ago. You know, I saw her yeah. Brighton Pride. And it's like she has been doing everything and mm. if not more than what is expected of pop stars like Adele has toured maybe twice in 13 years yeah she's released like four albums but she has the ability to stand back and say I don't want to go and do a stadium tour I want to spend time with my son I want to release my music my way or whatever whereas Britney is such a brand and so controlled that like it's album tour perfume brand mm. TV appearance you know it's all so formulaic with her and she hasn't been able to step back and say yeah. she doesn't want to do it and I think I think at the heart of it all, though, regardless of like the nuance and the kind of the details of the conservatorship, we're not going to understand Californian state law. We're not going to be able to like completely dive in and understand whether or not they'll lift the conservatorship. But one point that came up was that she has an IUD in her arm that she wants mm. to remove. And that is forced contraception on That's a woman in 2021. Yeah. That is absolutely incredible. Well, the thing about The Handmaid's Tale is Margaret Atwood said all of this stuff actually happens in pockets of the world and this is still oh, happening. Yeah. And this is part of a long history of female bodily autonomy being stripped from yeah. them. Once you name a woman crazy and it does often happen to a woman more so than a man, once they're labeled crazy, it's incredibly, it's, it's difficult. The cruel irony is you can't prove a negative. It's very yeah. hard to prove that you're not crazy once you've been labeled crazy. Yeah. And that's the terrifying element for me of listening to her transcript is no one will believe me. And while she's so angry and so emotional, she still has to maintain this lucidity that's like, I am lucid, yeah. I am angry, but I am sane. How do you combine all those things in a pot and 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 appear 
perfect and appear like okay we can end this conservatorship without evaluation yeah and exactly and also have the knowledge and the language to be able to advocate for yourself because yeah she hasn't chosen her legal team she hasn't chosen her doctors she spoke about this moment um when she was rehearsing for a tour and she changed a dance she changed the routine in the dance and um she changed one move and wasn't her management weren't happy with it her management contacted her doctor her doctor petitioned to the court saying that Brittany hadn't been taking her meds mm. and then they changed her meds from a course that she'd been on for five years to lithium the yeah. next day to not consent to the type of medication you're taking yeah. or to not understand that or to have the decision of taking that medication being taken away from you because of a legal a legal ruling is again completely oppressive she was not the same Brittany in that hearing yesterday that we see on Instagram. No, no. We see a very troubled, um, seemingly unstable woman on Instagram. She does rant and she does pace back and forth and she really appears like someone who's on medication and needs medication. Yeah. And that's the cruel, vicious cycle. But the more probably, you give her, yeah. the more she needs. But they have, they've controlled her working day as well. So she's she explains that she has a kind of... um a 10 hour working day and the posting is part of it and like engaging with their audience is part of it. And I think that we often assume and we're we're led to believe that social media is that authentic touch point with our celebrities and that they have complete control over it because it's their at name and their account and whatever. But like there is always a team behind the social. There's always going to be a strategy team, a PR team, mm-hmm. and especially if they're promoting something, if they're promoting like a collaboration or a brand, there's going to be other people involved, teams and teams of people involved. Yeah. So that is calculated. There's no way that she has. And she said it herself. She is it. She is not allowed to call her sons unless she does all the things on her work list. Yeah. So she obviously doesn't have 24-7 access to her own phone. No, she doesn't. So she's not deciding to get up and do a dance and post. Yeah. She's been given her phone for 15 minutes to go do the dance or someone else is filming it and she has to post it. But here's the proof that it's curated. She came on one day and did a Q&A and in it, one of the questions was, what's your favorite perfume? I think we spoke about this in the first um, episode we did about Britney. And she said, Tom Ford. She has a line of perfumes that she needs to sell. Someone hopped on within 10 minutes and deleted that video. Yet she goes on Instagram in clearly a troubled state just after burning her gym down. She's not able to speak um, coherently. She's pacing back and forth. Her eyes are wild. She's clearly on medication and she's saying she burnt her gym down. And that's left up because it plays into this narrative of Britney needs needs conservatorship. Everything on her Instagram is curated to within an inch of its life. The bad punctuation, the strange use of emoji emojis, whether or not she's posting it, someone is editing afterwards to say that can stay up, that has to come down. Exactly. That can stay up, that has to come down. Why do you leave something up that makes someone look like they can't look after themselves? Because you want to keep this conservatorship in place because there's so many people living off it. The conservatorship is a business. It's Absolutely. so sad. Absolutely. It's terrifying. And that was one of the points. I and mean, when you hear her say that herself, because I think we had never... We didn't realize that one of the things that came out, I suppose, in this in this trial this week was that she had been quietly petitioning for the conservative to end for the last couple of years. But we had never heard her public statement on it. And even after the Free Britney documentary, she kind of released a vague statement or her team released a vague statement saying, well, she appreciates the supports of fans. It's fine. And, you know, everything is grand. But when she was able to speak freely and talk about it yesterday or talk about it the day before yesterday, whatever, in court, 
it was very, very clear that she didn't have all of the information about the conservatorship. No. And then when she herself said, how can you tell me that I can make all of this money for everybody else and that I'm not good enough to look after myself? Yeah. And also her ask isn't that she go off and be allowed freely tour the world and have access to drugs and alcohol and parties and whatever. She's not asking for that. She's asking for three years off. She's asking for her boyfriend to drive her in that fucking car. Yeah. That's her. And that was, I love that. That's the most sane thing I've ever heard. I want my boyfriend to drive me in that fucking car. It's so angry and it's so sane. It's it's like, of course, like she deserves that. Yeah. That's the least she deserves. And to be able to just say, I've worked since I was 17. Yeah. I'm tired. I want this to end. I want it to be completely over and end and not. It's not like she's not asking to control the Britney empire. She's Mm. not asking for world domination. She's asking for some peace and fucking quiet to get the IUD out of her body, to spend time with her boyfriend, to go for a drive, to get her Starbucks Frappuccinos that we know she loves Mm. and just be able to live on her own terms. And it's so heartbreaking, but it's so it's going to be it's going to be so interesting to see how this plays out, mm. like what the court decision is going to be about this conservatorship for, for Britney Spears, because we don't understand how it works and we don't um, we don't know the details of it. But it seems archaic and inhumane that mm. you would have to put someone through a psych evaluation yeah. to to end a conservatorship. Like the line between family and business has been so muddled here. And the whole idea that obviously the conservatorship we know now is a business. The whole idea of allowing a family member to petition on behalf of an individual and express concern is that we're kind of accepting or taking as um, uh, hoping that a family member will be acting in that subject's best interests, that they Mm -hmm. don't have any conflicting interests. And that's why it's the place of a family member to express that concern and not a person that's just part of the company or someone who's making money. But now because we've muddled the two and the family is the business, we can no longer grant that weight to the family member's voice. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't see how it could be allowed that someone who's benefiting financially off this conservatorship should be allowed to ever come forward and and express that the conservatorship should stay in place. It's such a clear conflict. Complete and a total bias. So hopefully now, um, if the conservatorship ends and Brittany is allowed to pursue the lawsuit, she will have an opportunity to reclaim some of that money that she has, that they have taken from her Mm. um, over the last couple of years. Because, I mean, exactly that. Why would a conservator who is supposedly put in place to protect the person who needs protecting, why would they financially benefit at all? Like Turkey voting for Christmas. It's exactly that. Like they should not have any say in whether this continues. I know that Sam Ingham, who is her lawyer, did say, listen, I'm here at the pleasure of the court. I'll do whatever you guys think is best. How long has it taken for him to arrive at that point where he's willing to say, I'll do whatever you guys think is best? He's been such a crucial part of keeping this in place. Um, it's a it's an incredibly intelligent, calculated, deliberate operation. And I'm so glad that Brittany got to speak publicly yesterday. And it was shocking that she didn't even know she was going to be able to speak publicly. She has been completely dehumanized. She's yeah. like her body is just a performance machine. The fact that her bodily autonomy that she has that IUD and she can't have a baby. 
but yet she can go out on stage every night. There's a clip that's going viral this week of her saying on stage, you know, I have a fever um, right now. I'm actually really unwell. I'm feeling really hot. And then the music kicks in and she's to go into the next song. Anyway, we did also want to touch off the Sophie Toscan Duplantier documentary. Um, Which is actually interesting because it kind of feeds into what we're talking about now. So a lot of people know this story from the podcast West Cork and then just being Irish as well. So Sophie Toscan Duplantier was a 39 year old French woman who was killed in um, school in West Cork in 1993, 96. Yeah, 93. Um, uh, brutally murdered her. She was, uh, she suffered a head injury with a brick and, and then a cinder block. Her body was left at the scene for, I think, over 16 hours because back in 1993, they didn't have mobile phones. They didn't have access. Unfortunate events that the, um, state pathologist at the time was celebrating his birthday. So he couldn't get down till the next day. So they never really recovered enough forensic evidence from the scene. Also, we didn't, the Irish Irish um, Special Forces Unit uh, up in Dublin didn't have significant DNA testing. Everything had to be sent to the UK. So they kind of didn't really bother to to, to gather evidence from the scene. Um, and it's never been solved. It's never been resolved. And um, I suppose there's been there's been a load of different documentaries. Uh, what I thought, there's two things about this most recent one that I thought was really interesting. So Jim Sheridan has done a five part series for Sky uh, trying to solve the case. He had exclusive access to Ian Bailey, who was like the chief suspect as well. Um, and it, despite being, again, another horrific crime against a woman, Ian Bailey is centered in the story the whole time. And there was actually an interesting snippet where Frank, one of the... Um, one of the kind of legal team who was were representing Ian at the French trial. He was he was trialed in, in absentia for the murder. Frank was over there and there's a scene between Frank and Jim in the pub after the 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 day before the jury are to make a decision. And Frank actually says, if Ian didn't kill her, he still centered himself in the story. I'm paraphrasing, but he still basically centered himself in the story and made it more difficult for the family. And he's at least guilty of that. Yes. Because there is an element that Ian Bailey was or is a complete narcissist mm. whose dark humor was, he claims his dark humor was misinterpreted and placed him as the number one suspect. There's lots of other reasons why Ian Bailey is is the kind of number one suspect. Yeah. But, um, Again, it was a story about a tragic, violent death of a woman mm. and all around the story are just these men. So yeah. Jim Sheridan really centering himself in the story, saying that he's yeah. been working on this for 20 years. Mm. Him appearing in France at the trial, bizarre. Then um, Ian being, being the chief suspect and kind of, is he, isn't he a psychopath? the guards and their influence and how they didn't they didn't have the capacity to deal with the crime scene at the time local guardies especially down in kind of west cork where they wouldn't encounter a lot of homicides didn't have the tools or the the, the knowledge to properly preserve the scene loads of questions raised about why they did not take this crime more seriously at the time yeah why they didn't the fence where there was dna evidence there was blood on the fence the fence is just missing they just yeah. don't have it in evidence. Yeah. How they left the, the body out for uncovered for hours so that by the time the state pathologist did make it down, 
there was too much of a variance in temperature that you wouldn't be able to categorically state the time of death. Mm. And it was just like this kind of it can, a lot of things that happened. This woman came in, a foreign blow in, not local, found dead. A lot of assumptions then around she must have been having an affair or she had been having an affair with a, with a French colleague and it must have been something to do with some sort of like sexual uh, violent tragedy. Yeah. They just never took her. They never took her death seriously. No. And it's funny, like there's no new evidence, as you say, in this documentary at all. Like nothing, nothing new is revealed except for a very in-depth character study of Ian Bailey. Like we've yeah. never been so up close and personal with Ian Bailey, seeing how he operates at home. Um, you know, we there's a scene where he's sitting on the couch, absolutely ossified, drunk. Yeah. He still, he obviously doesn't admit to killing her, but it's getting uncomfortable around him not wanting to talk about his alibi. Um, he doesn't have an alibi for that yeah. night. He left the house. He wasn't in bed. He initially said he was. He came back the next morning. Um, it's really damning. And he's sitting there hammered drunk um, saying, I don't want to talk about my alibi. I don't want to talk. And what just pervades the whole thing, and I don't think it's shoehorning it in to this episode of Before Brunch, that women's voices again are just so absent from this yeah. piece, from this five-hour documentary. Sophie herself, the questions around, what kind of a mother leaves her children That's at Christmas? It. Yeah. Like, we have no idea what was and going on in that often family. was she described as a beautiful woman? She was beautiful and we never hear her voice. And I know they don't have footage of her voice, but it's kind of symbolic because then the other women that sit down, Marie Farrell, is so confused by her own fear of being pinned as someone who had an affair. So Marie Farrell is one of the key witnesses. Yeah. Um, later, her testimony was discredited. She had called from a payphone under a pseudonym because she was so afraid the night that um, she witnessed something she was engaged in behavior that she felt looked like she was having an affair so that small town fear of I couldn't have it be said that I was with another yeah. man that wasn't my husband led to her telling lies then the guards coming to her house convincing her to tell more lies in this documentary, she's sitting there and she actually doesn't know what to believe herself. Yeah. She has been so gaslighted that she doesn't know her own memory. She doesn't know what's real, what's not. Some of the court um, transcripts were like, we know Marie Farrell has lied to us once. How do we know she's telling the truth now about lying? When she came forward and said, the, the guards asked me to say that. The guards yeah. asked me to pin Ian Bailey it's, well, we can't trust you anymore because you lied the first time. Instead of actually looking at what happened, the guards told her to lie. Yeah. Yet we put the spotlight on her, untrustworthy narrative. But they, they won't, they won't take her. There's, uh, they stick with her original statement of it being Ian Bailey. Yeah. Even though she says it was a lie. Yeah. They said, we can't, we can't trust, trust you. you. If It's like almost like if that was a lie, then this is a lie. So it's you're like, always lying. But if that was a truth, then this yeah. is a truth. Then it's so like, if you're acknowledging that that was a lie, so this is a lie, like, then that was a lie. Yeah. Yeah, so it's exactly. It's just, it makes <laughs> yeah. so little sense. And yeah. even in all of the scenes, in all of the scenes with Ian, and they do interview Jules throughout it or whatever as well, but they don't, they don't get into the nitty gritty of it. They don't talk about properly about Ian's violence towards Jules. Yeah. Or her feeling on it and then at the end mm. at the end of the documentary they're just like and Ian and Jules ended their relationship it's like yeah. I want her perspective that's my documentary I, I want think, to see her come to I Jesus I think we moment. should go down to West Cork and make a Follow documentary up. 
only featuring women's voices yeah. about what happened to Sophie Tusk and to Plantier because there are people down there who fucking know. That's a great idea. And women always know. Yeah. The gossip that women do that's always discredited as frivolous gossip is not always frivolous. They often get to the heart of a matter, um, but they're not listened to. And this whole case was so badly botched by all the men involved. Like there is no so woman badly. responsible for botching this case. So badly botched. Yeah. Like the everything and the way the guards and this has happened. I, I, I can't have, I have nothing against the guards, but I do. There's been a couple of kind of unsolved cases. Um, the disappearance of Philip Carnes is another one in Rathfarn and back in the in, in the, the late 80s. Mm. The guards didn't have the appropriate training. Local guard, he didn't have the appropriate training to deal with homicides because they were so infrequent. Yeah. And in the crime watch um, re, uh, reconstruction of, say, the disappearance of Philip Carnes, they used his actual school bag in the reconstruction oh, for crime watch. Yeah. So they had like contaminated evidence and the same down with with Sophie Toscana Plantier they should have they have all these photographs and mm. they have blood stains and it's like you if you just held on to something for long enough yeah. surely yeah it would have been surely we would have at least gotten some answers now like they're solving cases like the um the Somerton man now with DNA exhuming bodies and DNA evidence they're going mm. back to crimes that happened in the 40s, 50s and 60s and being able to solve them now because of the advances of forensics. But because they knew enough to capture yeah. the information they had at the time. Whereas with Sophie Toscana Plantier, the guards didn't make it down till half 10. The, the Irish guards, Dub Dublin guards didn't make it down till half 10 at night. It was pitch black, you know. Her body was frozen. So her body was, like, yeah, just above, just above freezing point. Mm. They couldn't get any evidence off it. Mm. And they, they built the whole case on anecdotal evidence, which then exactly Marie came out and said was she was coerced into saying. Yeah, that's the painful thing is they botched it in so many ways. And like one of the saddest moments for me was when they never took a picture of Ian's hand with these supposed briar scratches. Yeah. They had a drawing, like a drawing that a child does in primary school where they trace around their hand and then loads of like lines on it as their evidence as an exhibit of his hand like I just at that moment I was like will we just leave it because we're embarrassing ourselves now yeah but it's the fact that they use women as the scapegoat and that Jules Thomas in the town in West Cork is known as the witch because she is the one that is keeping Ian um you know keeping the truth at bay and harboring a criminal and it's so Jules is evil Jules is evil Marie Farrell was obviously a scapegoat and that they used her as the witness and then pinned her as unreliable when she wouldn't say what they wanted her to say. Yeah. Sophie herself, her she was morality just beautiful, was discredited. Yeah, beautiful mother who yeah. abandoned her children at Christmas time to go over. And she like, must have been so the, lonely. And also the like she had previously, and I don't even know why this was concluded in her in the documentary. We knew details of an affair she had had with a colleague that ended three years prior to her death. Yeah. And it was still brought in as testimony to her her character yeah and she was she was once divorced this was her second husband all of those details have been mm. brought into it where it was like really just lightly touched upon that Ian once hospitalized Jules with violence and yeah. there was another there was a, a, in, in the final episode they were kind of talking about anger and um Ian's potential anger and, and Jim was like I have an anger to try and understand who has done this do you not have anger and he was like, no, I don't. And, you know, I, I don't. And then there's like one snippet where it's like they're using the fact that alcohol makes Ian angry or, you know, something to do with like placing the the onus of 
Ian's violence on alcohol. alcohol. Yeah. And it's like, sorry, we all drink. Yeah. Well, not everybody drinks, but we drink. Mm. Drink doesn't make people violent. Mm. Drink heightens violent tendencies in people that already exist. Yeah. I could dr- go out and get blackout drunk and I will still not punch you in the face. But even if, how come drink is an excuse for a man who's violent, but it's not an excuse for a woman who is attacked while she's drunk oh, then it's used it as evidence against them it's just horrendous isn't it it's there's it's so, so many it's just really hard there's so you can as a woman you can't convince people that you're not crazy no innocent or yeah you know yeah not deserving of a crime to be committed against you and here we yeah. are ending before brunch on another on a low note <laughs> no the next there's another sophie documentary coming out on netflix It'll be interesting to see their perspective and who has made this. If this one is another, if this is examining the case through the male gaze, then we are getting in the car next week and we're going down to Cork and we're just asking the women. I think that's a great idea. But next week, the next documentary, I think, is more anti-Ian and very much pinning Ian to the post on it and not allowing the Garda botch narrative to take any hold. So the the insider scoop on the two documentaries being created at the same time was that Ian got the life rights for, or that Jim got the life rights for Ian Bailey. So when you're making a documentary, you have to kind of... um, get the life rights for the people who are things so mm. one is from Ian's perspective which is the the gym one Jim, yeah and one is from Sophie's family so I reckon her son will will feature more heavily in this one and that'll be damning against the Irish mm. um judicial system as it should be because there's at the very last episode there is a kind of scene with Sophie's son where he's like it is not that Ireland are saying he's innocent and he didn't do it. They're mm. saying they don't we have the capacity to yeah. extradite him out to, to France. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, it's scary. But I love that idea of just asking only the women. We probably get to the bottom of it in a day. Oh, okay. Happy weekend, everyone. Have a great time. Have a great weekend. <laughs> we'll see you maybe next week. Fingers crossed. <laughs>